0: All right, well, it is great to be back. So we are on vacation for a couple weeks, but I'm super excited uh, to be back with you guys. Uh, and today we are launching a brand new series here at Ignite. It's on uh, the first half of the book of Daniel, and it, it's entitled "Unshakable: Standing Up in a, bow, in a Bowed Down World. And I have to say, I'm super excited. I think God's been speaking to me all week uh, in, in uh, Daniel, and uh, I, I think there's he's got a ton of great stuff to say to us th- through this book about how we can thrive, about how we can come alive, about how we can stand firm in our faith and become unshakable no matter what comes our way. Today we're going to do just kind of an intro message and um, give you some of the foundations about how we can become men and women of unshakable faith in God, and we're going to learn these lessons from a few teenage boys in a book that was written 2,600 years ago, and yet surprisingly, sounds like it's speaking to us today, right? It's God's Word. He does, he does that kind of thing. But I think God's got a, there's a ton of parallels between the culture in which this book was written and the, the world in which they were living and, uh, and the world in, w- in which we live today and the culture in which we live today. And so as these young men are learning to stand firm in their faith and to stand out and to stand up uh, for God in their culture, uh, it's got some direct and easy correlation and application for how we can do the same. So it's going to be great. Look forward to it. You guys should be here for it. It's going to be awesome. So anyway, uh, I'm going to start out today, like I said, doing just sort of an intro. I just want to really w- walk through Daniel chapter 1. We're just going to sort of let God speak for himself. I'll stop and make some application as we go. I'll stop and, and kind of uh, tease some of it out a little bit. Uh, but I, like I said, I think just there's some great stuff that God just kind of says for, for himself here, and I can't say any better. So we're just going to let him do that. Daniel chapter 1, starting the first one. If, if you've got your Bibles, open them up. Uh, If you don't, I have to say, I'd encourage you to bring them throughout this series. I think you'll end up marking a bunch of stuff up in your Bibles. You'll make some notes, and uh, we'll learn a lot. Like today, we've got a lot of content. Um, But it's also in the app. You can take it home. But I'd encourage you to be reading through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel over these next five weeks that we're digging into it uh, together, because you'll hear stuff that will get reinforced as you open up his word during the week. Make sense? Daniel, it's a little book towards the end of the Old Testament written by uh, none other than Daniel himself. It says this, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, it's about 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he besieged it. He attacked it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put uh, in the treasure house of his God. Now, I have to say, the first thing that, uh, before we get going too far, the first thing that I start, I notice as we start reading, and it bothers me a little bit, maybe it bothers you a little bit too, is this saying, it's giving a little bit of background here, and it says, Somebody is behind. Somebody delivered God's people into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And who was responsible for that? What does it say? It's starting with a sentence right here. It says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, God's people, into the hands of their enemy. I read that. Maybe if you're like me, you read that and you think, what in the world is going on? Let me give you a little bit of context and a little bit of background here. Here's what's happening. About 2,600 years ago, God's people, Israel in that day, in the southern kingdom, which is Judah, were turning away from the Lord. They'd sort of forgotten about the Lord and and decided they were better on their own. They were just going to go their own ways. They weren't going to be stifled by him so much anymore. They weren't going to have to put up with his laws and his rules and his, right, his truth and his wisdom and that kind of stuff. They decided, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to make my own rules. I'm going to do all this. And so they went out and they were living in all kinds of immorality and all kinds of ways that were just opposed to, to God's will for them. And so for decades and decades and decades, God had been sending prophets to them, prophets like Jeremiah, prophets uh, like Ezekiel and like Zephaniah who kept coming to them and warning God's people and saying, man, you're playing with fire. If you keep persisting in this direction, if you keep heading this direction, you are going to get burnt. And they warned him and warned him and warned him and warned him. And you know what they said? They said, Poof. I don't care, right? They kind of put their hand up to God and said, I'm just going to keep, I kind of like how this is going. I like how my life, I'm, I'm happy and we're doing fine. And I don't need your stuff. Oh, God. Ignored the prophets. And so finally God says, fine. And he steps back and he allows them to feel the consequences for their action. He allows them to feel pain. He hands them over to their enemies and said, fine, then, then do it on your own. Let's, let's see how this works out. And I have to say, oh man! You start reading this, and you think, man, this is this is bad news. They lose their freedom for a season, right? They get turned over to their enemies for a season, and God does. The, the, the thing, the thing that's crazy about this is God does it for their good, right? He, you can see the cycle that happens throughout the Old Testament, where where uh, you know people are walking with God, and the, the things you know, life is going great. They're experiencing joy and blessing, and peace, and all this kind of stuff, and pretty soon, they decide to wander away from God, and then things don't go very well, and he allows them to feel the consequences for their action, and the bottom drops out, and all of a sudden, they get to the bottom, and they start experiencing pain, and they say, oh man, this stinks, and so they turn back to the Lord, and they're like, God, we're sorry, would you restore us, would you draw us close, would you provide for us, would you be our God, and he's gracious, and he does that, and he restores, right, and brings back, you guys know this, we've talked about this before, there's this drill. We've experienced this before, haven't we? How many times have, have we learned from pain and God's used it to draw us back to him? But this is what God tends to do with his people. At different moments, he allows them to feel pain so that they'll turn back to him so that they will step back into the life that they were born for, so that they will repent, is the fancy biblical name, right? It means we're heading in one direction towards sin, and we'll repent, we'll turn away from our sin, and turn back home to God. And that's what's happening here in this story. They've been, the people have been rejecting or turning away from God again and again and again and again, and though they know better, though they've been warned, they've decided to keep going in that direction, and God finally is allowing them to feel the consequences of their sin. Can I tell you a story, because it kept reminding me of this, as a... Uh, as I was prepping this week, but uh, we had a situation in our household (laughs) where one of my daughters, I shared the story with permission, one of my daughters uh, came (laughs) came upstairs uh, from her room uh, maybe about a month or six weeks ago or something like that, and we'd had some workmen in our house that had been doing all kinds of stuff, so they had the doors open and windows open and that kind of stuff, and as a result, we had different flies and wasps and bees and some stuff that had gotten in. Well, I had managed to um, go through and kind of purge those from our house in every room but one right and so uh my, my daughter came upstairs one day and and told me i've got a wasp living in my room and i'm like well do you want me to go kill it i can go to ta- i've been taking care of these other ones i'll go swat it with a fly swatter or something we'll take care she's like no he's my friend right <laughs> he's my no i love i mean what what is it with you you just want to go kill everything like come on he he provides good company for me all this kind of stuff and i'm like I mean, I'm looking at her like, are you out of your mind? You know you're going to get stung, right? And she's like, no, no, no. She's like, we kind of respect each other's boundaries, right? He, he's got his space. I've got my space. We sort of just coexist and get along together. And I'm like, okay, well, like a, maybe a week or 10 days, I don't know, something, 10 days goes by, something like that. And she comes upstairs, part crying and part laughing. She was stepping through her room and stepped on the wasp. The wasp stung her and then died. So uh, she comes upstairs and she's like, "I stepped on a wasp." I mean, whatever. And it's one of those kind of parent moments that you're kind of laughing and you're kind of like teachable moment. I don't know. <laughs> and we kind of we're kind of we're kind of talking about this, and she's kind of justifying her decision to let the wasp live and all this kind of stuff. And I I finally just said to her, "I'm like, you know, if you live with a wasp long enough." You're going to get stung. You know that, right? Like if you live, and, and her response was this, yeah, but he got me through some lonely nights. <laughs> and I was like, whatever. And so it's become, it, this story is going to live in infamy in our house, like pretty much forever now. But I have to say, it, this is kind of what's happening in, in the Daniel story, right? If we live with wasps long enough, we're going to get stung. And I have to say, even as we are just starting out Daniel chapter 1, if we are as we are starting out this story, if I can pause for a second, and just say, man, there are some of us that have been, I have, I'm, I have no one in mind. I'm not, so if I make eye contact with you, it's not because I'm thinking about you. But like, but this is the reality for some of us. We treat sin flippantly. We've treated it like it's no big deal. We've been playing with fire. We've allowed a wasp to move into our space. And maybe God is, just as we're starting out here, maybe the first thing that God's saying is, man, you're going to get stung. You're going to get burned if you don't repent, if you don't turn away from that and turn back home, it's going to be bad for you. You don't want to have to live with the pain that's going to come in the consequences of this thing. You you with me? So this is what's happening to God's people. They are now experiencing the pain. They've been stung. They've got burnt a little bit. So we're going to keep going. Go back to our story. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll recap chapter, or or, uh, verse 2, so we'll start there. It says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, the hand of his enemy, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put into the treasure house of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude in every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine uh, from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave him the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Okay, now I'm just going to stop right there. Uh, because I want you to see what's happening here. I want you to notice sort of the strategy that's being used by their enemies, because I think so often the same thing is happening to us today. So back in the first few verses, an enemy has conquered God's people. Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon have sort of sacked Jerusalem. They have conquered the southern part of the kingdom that's known as Judah. They've killed all the soldiers. They've done all kinds of damage. But rather than slaughtering the remaining men, women, and children of that country, they've got a different strategy in mind. They've decided instead to convert them or to assimilate them into their culture. And so they've got a strategy of how to do this. They take the best and the brightest, the most beautiful of their youth... And they try to indoctrinate them for three years in kind of a three-year apprenticeship program that teaches them the language, the values, and the mindset of what it means to be a Babylonian. In other words, they're trying to teach these young men to think the way they think. And then they say they've basically offered and expected that these young men would come and they would feast at the same table as the king, right, as, uh, as Nebuchadnezzar. And you can imagine, uh, if you had the opportunity to go and eat at the White House, how many of you would do it? I would think we would probably have some of the best food around, right? you probably have some of the best chefs in our country that would do this. No, no Trump jokes or anything here, right? I'm just talk- I'm talking about the food, so stick with me. But, uh, but, right, I mean, you can imagine, if you were going to feast at the table of a king, how do you think the food would be? You think it would be, eh? How do you think it'd be? It'd probably be awesome, right? And so they're saying, you know what? We're going we're gonna to take these young men as part of their strategy. We're going to set them at the, at, at the table of the king, and we're going to allow them to eat some of the best food, some of the delicacies from the kingdom. There's probably going to be wine and women and song. It's going to be amazing. And we want these young men to sit at the table of the kingdom of Babylon and to feast on the very best that Babylon has to offer. And then their the strategy isn't over. The, the, the third kind of piece is that said we're going to rename these young men. And this this one has to do with changing their identity. Because in Israel, in this time, right, their name often represented their character or their calling or their identity. You see it over and over again. It's why God oftentimes in the Bible will change somebody's name when they come to Christ, when they put their faith in God, right? When they step out, they'll change their name. It's, it's, it's kind of a reflection of their identity. Well, let's jump ahead to this next part, uh, the next slide if I can. Well, here's what their names mean. Their, their Hebrew names mean this. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah's mean, name means the Lord shows grace. Mishael means who is like God? He's awesome. There is nobody like him. That's what it means, right? And Ezra means the Lord helps me. Those are pretty cool names, aren't they? But they're reminders of their identity. These, these four young men grew up in God-loving households. They had been taught God's word. They had memorized God's word from the time they were yay high, right? Just real little. They, they were, these were men and women who, or men, I should say, young men that loved God. They prayed. They were faithful. They were diligent. They were trying to serve and follow God the one true God. And so part of Nebuchadnezzar's strategy is like, well, that's got to change. If we're going to assimilate them, if we're going to help them to blend in, we've got to change their identity. So he changes their names to these, right? Belshazzar means Bel. It's a false God. It's an idol in that day and age. Protects me. Shadrach means led by Aku, the moon god. Meshach means who is like Aku." Instead of who is like the Lord Who is like this false god in Abednego uh, Means servant of Nebo Now it, this is just crazy kind of stuff But this is again part of the deconstruction process It's changing their identity So these young men Most scholars think that Daniel in this story Is somewhere between 12 and 15 years old They've been taken far away from home They will never see their families again They're surrounded by a culture that's hostile towards their God. They're taught the language and the culture and how to think like their enemies for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. They're supposed to be feasting at the king's table and indulging in all that that world has to offer. And then their enemy gives them new names and new identities. And you might be thinking, your eyes might be glazing over at this point. You're thinking, who cares? Right? What, what in the world does this have to do with me? And here's, here's what I want to say. Let me, let me just tell you. This is what's been striking me all week is that there are unbelievable parallels and similarities between what's happening in this story and what I think happens in our day and age. And here's the first thing. The first thing is this. You have an enemy and so do I. We have a spiritual enemy The Bible refers to him as all kinds of things, right? The deceiver, the accuser of the brothers and sisters. The the Bible refers to him as the liar, the prince of darkness, the destroyer, Satan, right? On on and on and on, all kinds of names. Jesus tells us in John 10.10 that this enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy us. He comes to do damage to our soul and to shipwreck our lives. But here's the thing, he doesn't do it the way you think he will. He's not that obvious, he's subtle. In fact, the same strategy that he's using in Babylon, 2,600 years ago, is the exact same strategy he's using today. One author I read this week put it this way, they said, there's nothing more dangerous than a friendly captivity, they said. There's nothing more dangerous than a friendly captivity because it never remains friendly. Go to that next slide if you would. This is a strategy, he uses this strategy. The strategy that he uses is not to just be overtly destructive and all kinds of things. In fact, his strategy is to make us comfortable in captivity. He wants to to make us at home in some place that isn't our home. He wants to lead us towards bondage, but make us feel like it's the table of the feast, right? He, He wants to deceive us into believing that we have something better there. His most effective strategy against God's people is to make us feel at home in, in captivity so that we never leave. That's his strategy. It's his trap. We will thrive. This is the reality for every Christ follower in the world. We will thrive as we walk out of as we follow him out of captivity, as we step into the life that God has for us. But the enemy tries to defeat to us by making us feel at home there so that we never leave. He tries to change our identity and says your worth and your value, your significance, it doesn't come from believing that you are loved by God or that you are his son or his daughter. It doesn't come from that kind of stuff. No, instead he tries to make us believe that our value and worth and identity comes from what we do. Things like our job or our intelligence, our intellect, our success, our relationship, our whatever, our looks. That's who you are, the enemy says. That's where your value comes from. He tries to change our identity. He tries to get us to live in his kingdom, right? The kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of this world rather than in God's kingdom. He wants us to pull up a chair to the table of this world and to indulge and feast on whatever it is that brings you happiness. He wants to keep us fat and happy and comfortable with the temporary pleasures of this world so that we are distracted from lasting and filling in the real eternal kingdom of God. The enemy wants you and I to embrace his values rather than God's values. I thought this was fascinating this week. Uh, but the, the, the primary value of Babylon, I, Isaiah 47 kind of puts it out there for us. Oops. Isaiah 47 kind of puts it out there for us. It's, it's talking about Babylon. It's sort of recapping uh, who they are and what they believe. It says this, Now, now then, listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging uh, in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none beside me. Okay, in today's vernacular, you know what that means? It's all about me. It's all about me. Go ahead, do whatever you want, right? Because it's all about you. Whatever makes you happy, do it, because it's all about me. I mean, right, you can do whatever you want. Be with whoever you want. Use your money however you want. Do right? on and on and on because it's all about me. We don't really identify with that in our culture, do we? We hear that over and over and over. Do whatever you want. Sleep with whoever you want. Cast off restraint because it's all about you and it's all about me. Here's the big idea. Here's the thing. Friends, the culture in which we live in, it's Babylon. It's like Babylon in our day. You and I have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, and he is using the same tactics, the same strategy today that he was using 2,600 years ago. He's trying to switch the values. It's a value switcheroo, so to speak. He says, live your life like this. It's a a mindset. I am, and there is none beside me. It's all about you. That's our culture. It's how people sell things. You deserve this. Indulge. Indulge. It's what drives so much of our culture, so many of our choices. It brings so much pain. It's all about me. That's a direct contrast from what we're created for, right? The next, uh, I put in there, this, and this is what they're playing off of, Isaiah 45. This is the Lord speaking, and he says this. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. You see the contrast, right? One kingdom is living for me. It's I am. There's nobody like me. I am special. It's I, the world revolves around me. And he says, man, you know what's true? Christ followers get this right? Christ, those that are living for me understand that it is about God's glory. It's about Him being lifted up. There is no one like Him. He is the hero of the story, not me. He is the the focus of our lives, not me. That's the way we're meant to live. It's the life that we're created for. That's the good stuff. It's not all about us. Our lives are to be about honoring and lifting up and glorifying God. There is none like Him. There is no other like Him. Our lives are to be all about Him. But the deceiver wants you to think differently. He wants to switch up our values. He wants to turn the gaze off of God and back onto you. He wants to make you comfortable at the buffet of this world. He wants to take your eyes off of God, off of his kingdom, and just leave it on yourself. He wants to lull you and I into apathy and into sleep. But here's the truth. The truth is that Babylon lies. The friendly captivity does not stay friendly. And as Christ followers, (laughs) we cannot stay comfortable in captivity. The enemy is trying to lull us uh, into comfort in in spiritual uh, uh, captivity. He's trying to trap us into temptation and enslave us by indulgence. He's trying to rename you so that he can restrain you. His strategy is the same because you and I are living in a Babylon-like culture. And I want you to see this because I think that same battle is going on in our lives today. And if we're not careful, and if we're not intentional, and if we're not prepared, we will be swept away. You know, it's interesting, as I was studying this week, uh, it's interesting, the text is, is pretty clear, that besides these four young men from Judah, there were others from Judah that were a part of that apprenticeship program. You know what their names are? You know what their names are? No. You want to know why? Because we have no idea who they are. You want to know why? Because they were swept away, because they became assimilated. They became a part of Babylon. There are only four young men in this story that say, you know what, we are not going to, that is not our kingdom. We are living for another kingdom. We are living for another king. We are going to live our lives for the one and only. There is no one like him. We're going to follow him. We're going to serve him. We're going to love him. We're going to stand with him and stand for him. He is, he right, he's, he's the guy that says, I am, and besides me, there is no other. They're like, we are betting it all on him. We are living our lives for him. But they have made a choice. They have decided to take a stand. They are resolved. Listen to this. We're going to keep going. Verse 8 says, uh, so back to the story, right? But it says, but Daniel resolved, that's probably the most key word in this entire passage, he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my, then have my head because of you. And Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servant for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this, and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And so the guard took away their choice foods, the other young men, he should say, and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave all of them vegetables (laughs) instead, to which they were like, yay, right, like kind of thing. (laughs) But it's an incredible story. I love, by the way, kind of what's happening here, right? These teenage boys, can you imagine? Teenage boys that are defying and standing up really against the king and his authority. They're standing up... uh, To the most powerful king on earth at that time. Even though their country is in shambles, even though they have been hauled away as prisoners to a foreign country, never to see their families again, even way outside of their comfort zone, these boys resist the most powerful king of their day. There's a choice there that they make. They choose to take a stand. Daniel resolved, it says. He decided ahead of time. He drew a line in the sand. He took a side and he chose what and who he was going to be living for and what kingdom he belonged to. I will not have a false identity ascribed to me, he's saying. I will not defile myself. I will not be corrupted. I will not be seduced. I will not give up God's great values and truth. I will not feast at the table of this world. Instead, I'm betting it all on him. I'm going to feast at his table. I'm going to find my identity in him. I'm going to live my life for his kingdom. Here I stand. I can do no other. Right? That's, what, that's what he's saying. I, I am resolved. Here I stand. Let the consequences be what they are. Right? I'm betting it all on God. Now, can I, I, I am just going to pause and, and step back for a second. I do think it's interesting, though. So he does take the stand. He's resolved. He's resolute in that decision. But do you see how he does it? Does he uh, go on Facebook and trash the king? Does he go on and, and uh, curse everybody out? And I mean, all this kind of stuff? Does he quit and walk out and stomp his feet and do a uh, it, It's interesting. He doesn't, right? Of course. In fact, he comes back with a request. He doesn't demand. He comes back with a request and says, Here, "Here's what I suggest. Why don't you let me and my three friends, why don't you let us try God's way?" And then compare. See if God's way isn't better. I double-dog dare right? See if God's way isn't better. And if it is, then let us, let us continue living. We're going to eat kosher. We're not going to eat the food that has probably been sacrificed to idols. There's probably all this kind of stuff. They want to keep themselves clean. They don't want to defile themselves uh, before God. It's a crazy kind of a cool way. He's not, uh, Daniel and his friends are not just concerned about doing, uh, doing God's will but they're concerned about doing it in God's way. And I think there's maybe a word there for some of us because, man, you don't have to go on social media for very long to see people that, that are kind of, kind of speaking for God, but they are clearly not doing it in God's way, right? They're trashing people, and they're hating on people, and they're angry, and they're... Divided. All this kind of stuff is going on. And, man, these guys, are they're like, no, 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 that's not how life works in God's kingdom. Because it's not just about living God's will, but it's also doing it in God's way. And those things are married together. And as God sees, right, these young men taking a stand and honoring him and, and the authority above them, even the authority that he has put in place, God blesses them. And he does that, day, he does that all the time. He does that day in and day out. Those who honor him it's kind of a principle. God honors those who honor him. It's the intangible blessing of God. Do you think after 10 days of eating vegetables, and in all, in all honesty, uh, the original language makes it pretty clear, it's probably, it's probably vegetables, fruits, and grains is probably what they're talking about in that, in, in that context. So do you think after 10 days of doing that, do you think that he would be like... Quite the chiseled specimen. I mean, is that kind of what's happening here in ten days of eating a little bit different? He might have dropped a few pounds, but do you really think he's it's going to look drastically different? Like, (gasps) like they're way better than everybody else. Do you think that's going to happen? Probably not, right? You probably, probably not. I I really do think. I think what we see because it's from this point in the story forward, you see it's God's blessing, right? You see it again, and it's God's favor and God's blessing. It's God giving him favor and, and sort of honoring them as they have honored and stood with God and for God. Look at the rest of the story. I want you to look through that lens of looking for God's blessing. Listen to what it says. Verse 17. This is the end of the story. It says, to those four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds. Who gave them, by the way? God gave them, right? To those four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Daniel, he gave the, the understanding of visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king uh, to bring them into his service after three years, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezra By the way, it doesn't use the other names. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the other magicians, enchanters, and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, which means he lived there the rest of his life. Now this is interesting, just uh, humor me and go there with me. Who was it that gave these four men knowledge and understanding? Who was it that caused the royal official to show favor and compassion towards Daniel? Who was it that gave Daniel the ability to understand and interpret dreams of all kinds? Who gave him favor so that the king declared that they were better, right, and found them ten times better than all the other wise men in the entire kingdom? Yeah, right? Who's the hero of the story? God is the hero of the story. Whose kingdom is better? God, right? I mean, we'll see this again and again and again throughout the book of Daniel. But the hero of the story, despite what you may think, is never. It's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not Daniel. It's not, right? It's God that comes through time and time and time again. And Daniel and his three friends, they experience life. They see and experience blessing. They see God's presence. They know his power in incredible ways because they simply chose, they resolved to stand with him in his kingdom, his way, his wisdom, its truth. They had the, the perspective to say, you know what? His way is better. Here I stand. I can do no other. This is what I'm betting my life on. I'm following Jesus. I'm following God. His will, His way, His word. I'm all in. And as a result, we see God's blessing poured out on them. We see God's power displayed. We see, in fact, you end up seeing, we'll see over these next five weeks, we'll see ways that God worked in incredible ways. He drew all kinds of people to himself. The mission of, of God moved forward in this world. His power displayed. His glory was lifted up so that the, the nations even knew that there was a God in heaven and there is no one like him. Right? It's the good stuff. Be, not because Daniel was so awesome but because he recognized that that's where life is found he was resolved to live that way I wonder where you stand on this deal the truth of Daniel chapter 1 right is that we live in a Babylon-like culture and our faith is going to get tested. We have an enemy that will try to take us out day after day after day, help us to blend in, just to be comfortable and at peace and sort of not make waves. He wants to take our eyes off of the king and put it onto, he wants us to pull up a seat to the buffet of this world and just feast on whatever it is that brings us pleasure. But God says, you know, there's a better way, there's a better kingdom, there's a life that you and I were born for, but you have to choose. You have to resolve, right? You have to decide ahead of time, where am I going to stand? Who am I going to live for? I wonder if there are some of us today that uh, maybe have never made that decision in general. Right, that that maybe we've been the truth be told, we've just been sort of flirting, maybe living with one one foot inside each each kingdom a little bit, right? Saying, Yeah, I'll go to church and I'll do some of the church stuff, but I also I'm just gonna kinda live however I want, whatever's best for me and my family, whatever, you know, kinda whatever tickles my fancy. Where did that even come from? Am I like a southern bale or something? I don't know what that is. But anyway, <laughs> but, like, like, but, but we've, kinda, we've, never, we've never made a decision. And maybe this morning, maybe the living God is speaking to you saying, you need to resolve, decide ahead of time, which one are you going after? Am I going to go after everything this world has to offer? If so, you need to know that the enemy in Babylon lies. It never delivers what it promises. I'm just telling you. We'll see it through, through the book of Daniel. We've seen it in our lives. Are we going to go in that direction and be like, hey, I don't care what God says. I'm going to ignore the warning signs, <laughs> the bells and whistles going off. I'm just going to keep going after whatever me and my, whatever, my plans. I am and there is none, no other like me, right? We can live that way. Or we can resolve and say, you know what? I know enough about me. I know enough about God to know it's about him. He's the hero of my life. He's the hero of my story. He's the gracious one. He's my judge. He's the one that loves me. He's the one that has saved me. He's the one that I want to live my life for. If you have never made that decision before, I'd encourage you, you. Make your choice, man. Make your choice today. Resolve not one foot in each kingdom. Make your choice. Here I stand. I can do no other. Maybe there's some other things in our lives, issues of integrity, issues of uh, even just issues that we've been trying to get, be swept away by that God's calling us to take a stand in today to say, would you resolve? For some of us, there are issues of sin, issues of temptation, right? And we, for the longest time, we've been swept away. We've been feasting at the world's table, <laughs> just, <laughs> right, whatever I want. And and maybe God's been speaking and convicting, and we know, we know we're out of bounds. And maybe today it's time to say, you know what, I'm going to resolve to not walk that road again. It starts with a decision. It's not the whole thing, but it starts with a decision, right? Some of us, for some of us, maybe uh, drugs, alcohol, whatever, is a temptation for us. And maybe it starts with saying, you know, I want to live my life in a way that honors God. And so I'm going to resolve not to put myself in i I'm not going to go to a bar. I'm not going to put, go to a party that has a... I'm going to resolve to not put myself in a situation where I could be tempted. I was thinking this week, uh, uh, Paul and I, both and some others of us in the church, have some accountability software on our, uh, on our computers. It keeps just anything, pornography, anything just unclean, anything, whatever, on the internet, on our phones, whatever, from popping up. You know, it just does that kind of stuff. It, it just protects us. I've used it for probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, and uh, it's been great. But it co- it's called Covenant Eyes is the name of this software. It comes from Job 31. It's a quote that says, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look at a young woman lustfully. But, but, but choosing to put this on your phone, on your computer, whatever, it's a way that you resolve, that you decide ahead of time, I'm not going to get snared by that crap. I'm not going to walk in that. I want my life to honor and reflect the glory of God. And so I'm, I'm choosing. I'm resolved in that kind of a thing today. For some of us, I have to say, there's probably some areas in our lives, man, maybe you're sitting around the water cooler at work and the temptation and the, the culture is that you just trash your spouse. And maybe God's been nudging on you and saying, you know, that's not, that is not what it's for, man. And maybe you need to resolve to say, I'm not... I'm not doing it. I'm I'm not going to, but maybe for some of us, we've been tempted. uh, I mean, everybody around us does, man, if if my spouse and my husband or my wife is is not everything that I want them to be right now, we should talk divorce. And maybe God's saying, you know, you need to resolve and say, I'm not going to walk that path. I'm not even going to use the word in my marriage because I want God to be honored and lifted up and you know what i 'm saying like there's so many areas I can remember back in college I should watch my time probably, but I can remember back in college uh, God started convicting me uh, I, when I started college. I was not a Christ follower came to Christ during college and uh, I can remember one of the areas that that God started dealing with me on is the issue of purity uh, in my relationships with with women and uh, and It's something I had wrestled with in the past, and I I kind of felt like God was asking me to say, uh, to sort of make a stand and say, you know what, I'm not going to kiss another woman that's not my wife, that that I'm not at least engaged to kind of thing. And it was kind of a hard thing and kind of a weird thing kind of thing, and it's one of those things that could be and is very misunderstood by all kinds of people, but I made that resolution and I stuck to it. And I have to say, some people that found out about it, uh, not that I was advertising, but some people found, thought I was a total crackpot, right? They thought I was out of my mind. Like, you gotta be nuts. Uh, as a result, I missed out. There were some relationships that never happened with some girls, and you know, but you know what's interesting? It also helped sort of sift and winnow out the right kind of people to be with. Tina didn't have a problem with it at all. In fact, she was also concerned about purity and honoring God in our relationship. And I have to say, I I mean, we've been married for 20-plus years, and I have to say I think we have experienced God's blessing and his smile because God honors those who honor him, who put him first. and and I don't know about you, but I would rather be misunderstood by the world and accepted by God than accepted by the world and not by God. How about you? Well, I'm completely run out of time, but I'm just wondering today if if as we start out this journey, if the living God isn't prompting you and saying, man, today is a day for you to take a stand. I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't know ways that you feel like maybe you've been washed away, but I wonder if God is saying, man, the first step to being unshakable for you is for you to stand up And say here I stand I'm in God I'm all in I want you to come and have your will done in your way I can't do it on my own but would you come and live inside of me and strengthen me with your help I want to follow and become day by day by day by day by day more of the man or woman that you have created me to be I'm all in I believe your kingdom is where it's at I'm in today here I stand I can do no other well This is a little uh, (laughs) maybe weird, but I'm going to ask you to stand (laughs) right now. I want to pray for us and just uh, have us stand. And uh, if you're comfortable, maybe even you just sort of open up your hands to God. It's just sort of a a way of saying, God, I need you and I'm open. I want you to come and have your way in me. Just sort of open up your hands and let me pray for us. Father, that's uh, my cry today. I know, Lord, we are human and we have undoubtedly screwed up again and again. And we come to you this morning as men and women in need of grace, in need of your love. Would you you wash us and forgive us for our sins, forgive us for our rebellion and for just, I don't know, the ways that we have made ourselves at home in this world. Would you wash that away? Would you make us new here this morning through the powerful name of Jesus? And God, this morning, would you help us to turn a corner in our lives, in our faith, in our walk with you. May we not just blend in with this world, but, Lord, today we stand and we say, God, I I want to stand with you. I want your will in your way. God, in ways that, that we're tempted in areas that we need to take a stand. I pray that you would move in us this morning, that you would be clear, that we would resolve to not be swept away in that in that area again, but that we would resolve to walk with you and to stand for you and with you. We need you, Jesus. We pray that you'd be developing us as men and women of Ignite to be people that shine and live for you that we would proclaim with our voices, that we would live with our lives, that you are, you stand apart, you stand alone, apart from you, there is no other like you. Your grace and your glory and your power, your kingdom, God, we want to live our lives with you and for you. Would you come and have your way in me? Have your way in each one of us. Lead us and guide us, Lord, teach us to stand. these things in Jesus' name.